Hi, and thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Burr. Tonight we talk toys and the turnaround at Mattel that is breathing new life into such iconic brands as Barbie and Hot Wheels. With live music back in full force and music fans eager to catch concerts once again, we look into a familiar frustration, the price of concert tickets and how they are sold. We find out how hiring managers across the country are coping with record low unemployment and more than a million job vacancies in Canada. It turns out they are turning to new and creative ways to try to recruit and retain employees. We speak with a relative of 13-year-old Noel Soup. The BC teen's body was found in a small apartment in Vancouver's downtown east side more than a year after she ran away from a foster care facility. How did she get there? How did she die? And why wasn't more done to find her? Noel's family still have many questions that so far remain unanswered. But first, the federal government is moving to ban the import of handguns, acting ahead of Parliament passing broader gun control legislation expected in the fall. But will it make a difference, or is it more about good politics than good policy? We begin tonight with the Liberal government's latest gun control move. Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino says Canada plans to ban the import of handguns into the country without the approval of Parliament. He says the regulatory measure comes into effect in two weeks and will last until that permanent freeze is passed in Parliament and comes into force. This announcement is further proof of our commitment to leave no stone unturned in our quest to prevent gun crime in our country. The federal government, federal government, of course, tabled gun control legislation in May that includes a national freeze on the importation, purchase, sale, and transfer of handguns in this country. The law did not pass before Parliament took its summer break, and it is set to be debated again when MPs return to Ottawa in the fall. For now, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie says she has the authority to ban any import or export permit in this country. In effect, this ban is a stopgap while the handgun freeze moves through the parliamentary process, preventing shelves from being restocked in the immediate term. So what to make of all this? Is this a good policy or just politics? Joining me now is Irvin Waller. He's an emeritus professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa and author of The Science and Secrets of Ending Violent Crime. Irvin Waller, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you for the interest. Uh, Whenever it comes to gun issues for the Liberals, uh, specifically for urban voters, it always sounds like good politics. But uh, what was announced today? Is it good policy? Uh, I think it's, um, it will make uh, no difference. Uh, I, uh, I get a little bit upset that they say this is going to make uh, communities safer. I don't think this will make any difference uh, whatsoever to um, communities being safer. Uh, and I don't think the freezing of uh, handgun licenses uh, would make any difference either in the in the short term. It might make a slight difference in the in the long term. Uh, it, it, basically, the people who are shooting each other in urban areas are uh, using handguns that are illicitly imported from the United States maybe 80%, maybe 85% uh, come from the U.S. I, I think it may have some marginal impact on the price of illicit weapons, uh, mean, meaning that uh, if, if you want to buy a handgun on the black market, you may have to uh, pay um, marginally more. Uh, the basic problem is that they're not tackling the demand for these 
handguns. And unfortunately, we've seen in the last five or six years an increase in the illicit use, illegal use of uh, handguns. And that's actually quite dramatic, um, uh, 20, 30 percent. Fortunately, the rise in the number of homicides is not so dramatic, but it's going in the in the wrong direction. And I can't put all the research to back this statement, but uh, uh, basically you ratchet. So the people who have handguns uh, uh, and the people who get engaged with them who want handguns, uh, so they're going to be looking for handguns. And it just uh, little by little in Canada, uh, you get uh, more and more people um, buying handguns on the black market to settle disputes, to settle somebody who has shot their friend or relative, uh, uh, somebody who's insulted their friend or relative, and to protect up to a point the um, the trading of, um, of illicit drugs. Yeah, I mean, I think what what we're trying to get at here is that we know that there's been an increase in the number of, of of legally imported guns into this country. At least that's the stats that the government points to when it talks about this. But there are two things here that I found a bit surprising. One was the urgency. Why now? Why all this? Why do you need to bypass parliament? There's a bill about to be looked at. Uh, why now? And and what impact really would this have? Does this freeze have? You've already talked about it. It, it strikes me that legally owned handguns in this country, while perhaps a measure of concern, and there is a support across the country for a handgun ban, at least in major urban areas, that this doesn't really solve the problem, the root problem, which is gun violence. Uh, yeah, well, you're absolutely correct. And I think what is most uh, disappointing is that we have very solid science about what would reduce handgun violence in urban areas. And uh, this is well established. You can find out about it. Actually, uh, interestingly, from a website on the U.S. of uh, the U.S. Department of Justice, you can find out on the website of the British College of Policing. You can find out on a website of the World Health Organization. And in my books, Hunts and Secrets of Ending Violent Crime, I brought all those and actually many other sources together to show what really works to stop street violence with uh, handguns. And importantly, we also know how to implement those measures. So the, the, the sorts of things that are likely to make a difference in urban areas in Canada are uh, putting a uh, outreach social worker into hospital emergency rooms where the victims of shootings or knifings go and you uh, that street worker helps uh, uh, convince the young man, they're almost all young men, to take another uh, uh, way in life. So uh, to probably advance their schooling, to uh, maybe get uh, training for a job. And um, so you're talking about crime, crime prevention here. I mean, at the end of the day, this is crime prevention versus this is tackling the roots of the problem as opposed to trying to tackle the supply of the gun, which is often at the end of this whole scenario. Yeah, I mean, the analogy with with drugs, we know that it doesn't matter 
on the border, people are bringing in fentanyl or whatever sorts of drugs. And we're living a period with this absolutely horrendous number of uh, drug overdoses. I mean, it's written in, 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 in black and white, in my view, that what you do at the border may be important to do, but it's not going to solve uh, the problem. Now, there are two ways of looking at the causes. One, somebody like me talks about the roots of violence, which are poverty and racism and uh, those sorts of things. Uh, but somebody like me also talks about tackling risk factors. So you're uh, within the group of people who are racist against them and uh, poverty is against them. It's actually a very small number of these uh, young men who engage in this violence. Uh, and those are the ones that you have to focus on, um, either when they actually get uh, shot or knifed, uh, but also uh, when they're on the street. They're well known to the police, to families, to, uh, in some cases, to schools, and you uh, you focus on them. And when you do that uh, with outreach workers, like I've mentioned, uh, you get reductions of... Um, uh, well, 50% over a three-year period from when you start doing it. Now, you also have to plan. And the exciting thing for me in Canada at the moment is that in 2019, Ontario changed its police act and it changed it to call it the Community Safety and Police Act. And it, the, there is a section in that revised police act that obliges that makes every municipality in uh, Ontario actually come up with a plan and those plans by the way have to deal both with the roots like poverty and the risk factors like those who are already engaged in um, a violent uh, lifestyle or about to be engaged in a violent uh, uh, lifestyle. We'll take a quick break and come back and we'll uh, we'll continue the conversation. I'm speaking with Irvin Waller. He's an emeritus professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa, author of The Science and Secrets of Ending Violent Crime. We're talking about an announcement today from Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino uh, that Canada will ban the import of handguns into the country without the approval of Parliament, uh, a regulatory measure that will come into effect in two weeks and last until that permanent freeze that Parliament announced or that the government announced in the spring comes into effect. When we come back again, just a, a little bit more about what difference this is going to make and why the urgency uh, of passing this measure without the approval of Parliament. That's now. My guest this half hour is Irvin Waller. He's an emeritus professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa, the author of The Science and Secrets of Ending Violent Crime. We're talking about an announcement today from the government, from the federal government, from the public safety minister, Marco Mendocino, announcing uh, that uh, a new regulatory measure will come into effect in two weeks, uh, freezing or banning the import of handguns into this country, uh, citing a big jump in the import of legal handguns, a uh, 52% increase uh, over the same period last year between January and June of this year. Uh, so just to, to go back, to this issue of handguns, because I think a lot of people in this country are concerned about handguns. So it makes sense for politicians to respond to these concerns. I guess the concern is, uh, you know, does it make a difference? And we've talked about the fact that it probably won't in this case, but is it bad policy? I mean, that, that's what it boils down to. Will it, will it also, will it cause harm uh, and not do any good? I think people are concerned about uh, signs uh, of uh, people being shot, particularly people being shot during the day in uh, areas outside of the uh, poorer areas where um, 
both the victims and the offenders typically come from. And I think they're right to be uh, concerned about that in terms of uh, it is possible that uh, somebody can be uh, shot who was not targeted. And in my view, people should be concerned about people getting shot, full stop. Uh, but these shootings do not involve, or in very rare cases, uh, um, and those are not in urban areas, in very rare cases, uh, in rural areas, you may get a misuse of a handgun by somebody who is uh, uh, the rightful owner. I, I, I don't understand why the government, given the amount of evidence and knowledge we have, and they have access to it. They have access it, to it through my book. They have access to it through the websites. It's easy to get. And uh, many of the people working for the, the Minister of Public Safety are familiar with uh, both my book and the knowledge. So I do not understand why they do not invest in the things that will actually reduce that, that violence. And yes, it is urgent to do it. And you can get uh, what I would call short-term solutions. Uh, you can reduce this violence by uh, 50% within a two or three year period. If you do, uh, if, if you actually have uh, outreach workers in hospital emergency rooms, uh, you will get um, results in an even shorter term. And the, uh, Toronto is now doing this in the Sunnyside Hospital, and I think they're looking at doing it in uh, St. Michael's as well. Does this do any harm? I mean, it, it, does this target the wrong people, in other words? <laughs> Um, well, I think it does two sorts of harm. Uh, first of all, it puts up the price of these uh, handguns that are bought on the black market. And that means um, more violence to acquire these uh, handguns. And I think in the long term, it's not a good idea to allow more and more handguns to be around because eventually they will uh, get stolen and eventually they will get misused, for instance, in uh domestic uh, violence. So I, I, I'm not against uh, some sort of restriction. But um, in terms of urgency, uh, the urgency is to stop us going down the road of, uh, um, of Chicago. Chicago uh, last year had 800 murders. That's more murders than the whole of Canada. It has, um, it's the same size city as Toronto. Uh, it has, in Toronto has roughly 80 murders, uh, marginally more than a half are with um, a gun, so primarily handguns. Uh, and Chicago has two and a half times the number of police. It has, uh, it incarcerates at a rate that is unimaginable anywhere else in the in, right. in the world. So uh, we, we, we need to change um, a culture from trying to, in my view, obsessively deal with the, the misuse of handguns and people seriously injured and people killed with handguns uh, by um, enforcement measures. Uh, you have to get upstream. You have to use prevention. It's effective. It's cost effective. Um, the federal government talks about uh, uh, putting out some money for this, but uh, they've been incredibly slow, incredibly slow in in putting that money out. And it's money for projects. They need to put money out uh, on a permanent basis. 
they've got uh, Toronto already planning now. They spent uh, Toronto is spending a million dollars this year just on planning. We're going to have to leave it at that. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate your insight into this. And um, yeah, good to, we'll catch up. Uh, we know that this legislation is is going to be looked at again by Parliament. Uh, and I appreciate your insight. Thanks so much. Thank you for your interest. Despite living in an age of virtual reality and video games, it is a classic toy invented way back in the 50s that continues to rule the roost. According to the American market research company, the NPD group Barbie, was the global top toy property in 2021. That's just part of the story. Mattel is in the midst of moving Barbie, or at least the brand, into the 21st century. A world of Barbie immersive experience is now open in the Toronto suburb of Mississauga at Square One. There's social media, uh, a feature film due out next year, of course you may have heard of, and already animated features on places such as Netflix. Here is the trailer for Barbie Big City Big Dreams. Broadway yet? And competition is fierce. But there's only one Barbie. Funny you should say that. I made a new friend, and guess what her name is? I'm Barbie, Barbie Roberts. We, we have, have the same, same name? Two Barbies share the spotlight. Competition isn't always about winning. It's about bringing out the best in each other. In an all-new musical movie in New York City. New York, I love you already. Yeah, that's Barbie and Barbie, big city, big dreams. You get the point. Uh, they've really expanded uh, the appeal, or at least the brand, and it's part of Mattel's bigger turnaround. They're also bringing back such uh, such iconic brands as Hot Wheels and Masters of the Universe, and uh, it's been quite the success story. And joining me now with more is James Zahn. He's deputy editor of The Toy Book, an American toy industry trade publication, North America's leading publication, in fact, covering the toy industry since 1984. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to talking toys this evening. Yeah, it's always a fun conversation. Uh, I mean, I haven't paid a lot of attention to Barbie of late, but there's been a real shift going on. I mean, the last I remember was all the controversy over how it was dated and it was time to, you know, it, it, Barbie was past its due date. Uh, but Mattel seems to have uh, to have shifted things a lot of late. Yeah, Mattel has been in the midst of a multi-year turnaround effort. And as a matter of fact, earlier this year, about January or so, their CEO declared that the turnaround is complete. And what had happened at Mattel is over the last decade or two, they had gone through a lot of turnover at the top. Um, the CEO was sort of a, a game of musical chairs for a number of years. And then, of course, they were trying to sort of figure out their place because they're a stable of these iconic brands like Barbie and Hot Wheels and Masters of the Universe. But of course, kids are evolving. Play is, are, is totally evolving as well. And uh, Barbie has always sort of dominated the doll aisle, but there probably hasn't been um, such a competitive era of the last 20 years. So Barbie really did need to get reestablished and sort of get with the times. Um, and now here we are, and Mattel is making a ton of money. They're moving a ton of dolls. And a lot of it is due to the fact that they're able to position this iconic brand with Barbie um, as something that is totally relevant for kids of today, but still tap into that 60-year-plus lineage of the brand. 
Yeah, it, it was amazing to see how they've managed to turn it around because obviously there was a lot of, I mean, the Barbie brand was a source of a lot of criticism, but its legacy is a source, it must be a source of great strength because it's so familiar. Yeah, I mean, you there's that distinctive Barbie pink and you think of all of the careers that Barbie has had over the years, which was actually truly groundbreaking when that came out, that Barbie sort of goes with the phrase, you can be anything. Barbie has been an astronaut and has been to the space station and zookeeper and doctor and pop star and rock and roller, all kinds of different things. But there was this ideal of Barbie as sort of, you know, the, the blonde hair, the Barbie doll image. And that's one of the things that Mattel really zeroed in on changing so that kids could sort of see themselves and see their neighbors, sort of make Barbie a brand that is more reflective of the world around us. And that's where some of these lines have come in. Like they have a, a brand called Barbie Fashionistas and um, they're, they're made in all different types of skin tones and hair types and different body shapes and there's men and there's women and they just look more like the people out there in the world that takes some doing though i mean that's certainly easier said than done for any company to take its most iconic brand and then shift it you know put it through that sort of transformation because it can also land very flat you're taking risks right Absolutely. This is not something that you can just snap your fingers and make happen. And of course, in the toy business as well, what a lot of folks don't realize is that there is a very long lead time. If you and I came up with a cool toy idea today and someone were to greenlight that idea, we're looking at anywhere from, you know, the average would be about 18 months to get that out to the shelf. That has been coming down a little bit in recent years, especially with sort of all the supply chain issues and things in the world. Speed to market is very important. So it's coming down a little bit, but that sort of year and a half timeline just to get a new toy from idea to a store shelf to a kid's toy box. And for Barbie, this has been like an overall brand reinvention over the course of about the last five years specifically and they've done a lot too just beyond the toys in reaching out to kids and families um they have an initiative called the dream gap project which is all about how they've discovered through different research that kids especially girls start to uh question their self-worth at a very young age and for young girls that dream gap as they as they say is where it starts to affect them internally that maybe they can't do the same things that boys might do or whatnot there there's a lot of psychological elements at play here and it's fascinating how they've been able to work that into sort of real world doing good with different social initiatives but still somehow tie it back to playing with a toy how has Barbie, how has Mattel evolved the brand for a modern age? You think of video games, lifestyle, social media, all those things where the brand is probably pretty strong. Uh, but that's a lot of, you know, that takes a lot of planning to make that work. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we're seeing a lot now is location-based experiences. So there's this Barbie experience tour, which uh, just 
kicked off uh, outside of the Toronto area recently and is going to travel to different large cities across North America. These are sort of like the photo ops and the real live in-person hands-on experiences where basically the kids and their families get to live within that world. Like there's there's like a, a space pod and different things and a camper van and you can kind of live that experience live and in person. But then they do these other initiatives throughout the year where um, they will occasionally have like Barbie pop-ups at different retailers. They have spun it a lot into entertainment content. So Netflix is a prime example where they've done quite a few Barbie specials and animated, this is like CG animation, um, Barbie feature films that they put this content out on Netflix and within a week or two of the new content hitting the streaming platform, they start to see a double digit bump in the toy department as far as kids going out and, you know, asking mom and dad, whoever to buy them some new stuff. So that kind of ties into it. And then you have this market that, uh, the, the buzzword in the toy business right now is kidult because kids don't really have to grow up anymore. Adults want to collect things. They want to play with things. They have an affection for the stuff they grew up on as a kid. And you have all these lifestyle brands with different apparel and accessories that grownups can enjoy. And that sort of, I think, is all going to come together next summer when this live action Barbie movie comes out with Ryan Gosling as Ken and Margot Robbie as Barbie. But one of the things that's sort of been played down lately is they may not own, be the only Barbie and Ken in the movie. There have really? been rumors that there might be other Barbies and Kens out there. I'm speaking with James Zahn. He's the deputy editor of The Toy Book. Uh, we're talking about uh, the resurrection, really, or the turnaround at Mattel, specifically uh, its big brand, Barbie, and just how much has changed in the last five years, a real shift in both the marketing uh, of Barbie and, and and the product itself, uh, appealing to or trying to appeal to a much broader audience uh, and sort of moving with the times. A, a, a toy that was often felt to be stuck back in the 50s has certainly uh, evolved into the 21st century quite rapidly uh, over the last bit. Will we come back we'll talk just a bit about what lies ahead uh, there is going to be a release of a very popular 90s barbie um again and uh, they're you know they're moving with the times and also just can you be trying to be too many too much to too many people is that a risk that mattel is running here we'll be back with that my guest is James Zahn. He's the deputy editor of The Toy Book, an American toy industry trade publication, North America's leading publication covering that industry since 1984. We're talking about uh, Mattel's turnaround over the past little while, the iconic toy brand. If you grew up in the 80s like I did, I mean, Mattel was everywhere, right? It was it. Was it. it was one of the big brands, but certainly its main product, Barbie, fell on uh, some fell under some criticism uh, of recent, recent times, and they've set about modernizing uh, their most uh, valued and most popular brand. Um, James, is there a risk here at all of trying to be too much to too many people with this particular product? I don't think it's particularly a risk, and it's largely because if you look at where we are uh, in life right now and as a society, sort of everyone has to be everything to everybody, and there are so many different interests out there it makes sense to try to reach a large audience. And for a brand like Barbie, 
it's cross-generational. So now they're able to connect with new generations of kids, which will, of course, carry that brand forward into the future. But they're all also reaching parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles that have played with these toys throughout the last 60 years. So it's very exciting. And not just, you know, not just happening with Barbie at Mattel, uh, Hot Wheels is bigger than ever. Matchbox is on a big comeback run right now. Masters of the Universe, which is another 80s icon that's uh, turned 40 this year, is back in a big way. And then they're trying to um, work on some of the smaller brands as well. But it's really about being a franchise, going beyond just toys and having uh, entertainment to go with it. And we're talking TV, music, movies. Uh, there's a lot of different ways, and they all seem to gel together. One of the things I found really interesting about the Mattel story is so often it's the other way around. You know, you have these these movies or these products that then foster this sort of paraphernalia or the doll products, for instance. This way, it's it's the other way around. They've taken an existing doll and turned it into a multimedia experience, and that's uh, th that must offer some lessons. For other companies out there who have nostalgia products who haven't quite found the magic formula just yet. Yeah, and it's really interesting to look at sort of the approach from uh, the big two or the big three toy makers. If you look at how Mattel approaches their IP versus how Hasbro deals with theirs or how Lego approaches their brands, uh, there are some different fundamentals. So on the business side of things, Mattel has been, um, I guess, very well thought in partnering with different entertainment studios to develop their toys into entertainment properties. Um, and they sort of farm it out. You know, they do a deal with Warner Brothers or Sony or Netflix, and they sort of don't put the financial risk on Mattel itself versus a company, say, like Hasbro which acquired an entertainment studio a couple years ago. They acquired E1. So they take on a little more financial risk by developing more stuff in-house. So there's a layer behind the scenes of how toys and entertainment intersect that Mattel is playing differently. And by working with this sort of multitude now of different companies with all of these, last I heard they had about 35 different um, entertainment projects in the works uh, for movies and television. Uh, it's pretty astounding. It is. And and there's a new product coming out. I was talking about it in the tease. You've written about it uh, in a toy book this week. Uh, there's a there's a 90s Barbie making a comeback, taking advantage of some of that 90s nostalgia that's out there now that kids who grew up in the 90s are hitting their 40s. Yeah, it's a totally hair Barbie is back. And that doll first came out about, well, right on the 30 year mark. So like 1992, she had ankle length hair that grew out from the top that kids could style. Of course, it was peppered with some of that 90s sort of technicolor neon thing that it was all happening. Uh, and of course, toy, toys are very cyclical sort of like other things, you know, in the 80s, people were sort of obsessed with the 50s. And it kind of runs on like that rolling 30 year cycle. And here we are again, and uh, totally hair Barbie. Yeah, they just reintroduced it. And even with that, they have uh, all different types of them. There's not just one, you can get different Barbies that look more like you and your friends. 
It must be an exciting time to be covering the toy business because it seems to be, um, you know, sort of re parts of the, you were talking about the majors sort of re-emerging and reinventing themselves. So not only is it interesting just for the products, but for the business behind it. It is, you know, the toy industry, I think in the last couple of years has taken on a more mainstream focus with people. And I, I think a lot of it actually might've happened sort of between 2017 and 18 when Toys R Us was collapsing in the U S and on the verge of collapse in Canada. And of course it played out very well in Canada with new ownership, but um, the, the general public sort of, wanted to know what's going on behind the scenes here how does this stuff get developed how does it get to the shelves and the business behind it i always kind of equate it to being kind of like movies you know you might not work in hollywood but you want to know what goes on behind the scenes and with toys there's a, a running running thing it's the old cliche you know what what's old is new again and that sort of happens and we're seeing it this year like one of the brands i mentioned before was masters of the universe is 40 this year and that's a mattel property well 20 years ago 2002 they were doing a 20th anniversary line so here we are 20 years later and there's 40th anniversary products so some of these brands just have a legacy that doesn't go away and they never go away fully they sort of just recede a little bit and they wait for the right generation to pop up again and then they get back on the scene any favorites of yours from that era? I remember Masters of the Universe very well, specifically that what would look like a very antiquated cartoon right now. Yeah, you know, I really enjoyed that growing up. Of course, I was also into Star Wars and Transformers and things. I, I played with my sister a lot. I, I played a lot of Barbie. Um, my thing when I used to play with my sister back then was uh, Barbie and the Rockers. Right. Where they had a band. I remember that. Um, they yeah. had the stage and everything. And of course, that was another toy industry competition happening. Mattel had that, but then the folks at Hasbro came up with Gem and the Holograms. So they kind of went head to head battle of the bands with their dolls. But um, if you kind of uh, go totally core memory type of thing, I loved my big wheel, my three wheel oh, yeah. trike. Those were awesome. Those, whatever happened to those? They still make them. Um, that's another one, too, where the the license to make big wheels sort of changes hands every couple years and someone tries to relaunch it. But uh, I'm I, I just have such a soft spot for that. I wore mine out with that. They had that handle on the side that you could pull and kind of skid out yep. and wear the wheels down. I just remember the sound of the plastic on the gravel. It made a very unique sound compared to uh, to your bicycle. James Zahn, thank you so much for your time tonight. You're quite welcome. Thanks for having me. You know, one of the concerts I missed because of the pandemic was actually Hall & Oates. I was supposed to see Hall & Oates uh, outside of Seattle. I've been looking forward to it for quite a while. I saw them back in, I think, in 1981 in Montreal a long time ago a lot of people i think missed going to see live shows you know remember when they were all canceled you, people struggled to get ticket refunds and so forth so when things started to change go back to normal somewhat um i think people were really excited to go back to see concerts and of course musicians were excited to play again uh, it had been a tough two years for everyone in the performing arts um, so with concerts back in full swing a lot of us are probably eager 
to go see live music again. You'll notice that prices aren't really what they were a few years ago. A report, one report says that average prices for concert tickets have increased nearly 20% between 2019 and 2022. Uh, but one of the things that's also uh, raising some issues, and this is not a new subject, but it's funny how it's resurfaced so quickly once again, is anger about how the whole ticketing system for concerts works, including something called dynamic price tickets. Um, so with concerts a thing, once again, the debate over tic- ticket prices, who takes what, an often vilified ticket master, of course, are once again taking a front row seat in this whole debate. Uh, Pascal Corti is a professor of economics at the University of Victoria, who's done a lot of work on the res- resale market for tickets and pop concert pricing in general. And he joins me now. Thank you so much for your time on this Friday night. Thank you. So this is hardly this is hardly a news story. Uh, it seems it didn't take long for for fans to be heading back to see concerts for anger about how concert tickets are priced and the availability and so on. What's driving it this time? There was a big scandal around this Bruce Springsteen's North American tour. I understand. I think it's probably one of the first time that both the artist Bruce Springsteen and Ticketmaster are very upfront about. Uh, pricing tickets uh, up to whatever the demand can uh, bear. So pricing uh, tickets to demand. So that, that's dynamic pricing, right? I think you, it's mentioned, um, you know, if you've, ever take, if you've ever tried to book an Uber, you know what surge pricing is like, right? So that's this right. is, tell me, a bit, tell me a bit about how the dynamic pricing works. And uh, I, I guess it, it can be a bit of a nasty surprise if you're going online or you're waiting in a virtual uh, ticket line, so to speak, when you get to the virtual ticket booth, uh, you may find a bit of a surprise about what's left to buy. Yeah, so, so there the, the are an important distinction to, to make here. So, so one notion is to price every seat and every event to whatever it's worth. Another notion is to kind of manage the price discovery process in, in a dynamic way, meaning that the same seat for the same event, uh, the price from that, that seat for that given event might change. And, and that's dynamic pricing, and um, meaning that when you buy, it matters. And, uh, and, and you know, if, if um, circumstances changes, maybe the, 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 the uh, ticket master might change the price because they realize they can make more money and uh, they, they will be able to sell all these tickets. Obviously, the, the flip coin of that would be that some other artists do is that if they strong demand, they, they increase the number of shows, right? They stay longer in town and they, and they, and they uh, offer shows until, um, you know, every fan has been able to, 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 to come. Right. But we well understand that for artists like Bruce Springsteen, there are only so many days and only so many dates and only so many places you can play. So, I mean, you touch on a problem that's always existed for the music business is that every once in a while, certain artists, there's much more demand than supply. Um, But why is concert ticket pricing, why does it still feel so cryptic compared to, say, buying a train ticket? You raise a very good point here. So, uh, so, so let's say that uh, as a general point, dynamic pricing has slowly made its way first in airline and then uh, in the sports industry. So if you buy a baseball ticket, uh, ma- many teams uh, uh, use dynamic pricing. And uh, in the concert industry, it has been more controversial because 
there are many reasons for that. Some uh, artists are opposed to it uh, on uh, principle, on um, you know, like being pro-social or political views, and that it's unfair and it's not the way they want to deal with it. And other artists feel that their art or their they don't want to put a value on the concert and they don't want to uh, have to lower their, the value of the concert because there is low demand and you know this could have a negative uh, reputation. So there are many reasons for why. This is less the case if you want for an airline ticket for sure, and also for a sports team, right? Because a team is a team and a game is a game, right? Well, uh, uh, an artistic performance, you know, it's more sensitive and it is more subjective uh, component to it. And uh, and everybody would like to believe that their show is the best and that they could charge a lot of money. Uh, it's still, though, again, um, it it doesn't. I mean, anytime you buy a ticket, I, I guess what I was trying to get at is that there are a lot of things that you buy in life where you pretty much know what you're paying for and why. And sometimes it feels like when you buy tickets, and maybe it's not just concerts, uh, and I understand dynamic pricing. I, mean, I think it's it's probably not a, you know, you're basically meeting demand, right? It, it seems mm-hmm. seems to make mm-hmm. sense. Um, but I still don't understand why, you know, buying tickets from Ticketron, for instance, not to always pick on them, but we'll pick on them, uh, why it always seems like you're paying an incredible amount of, of fees and stuff, and all of it is kind of inexplicable. Well, if, if you buy in a secondary market, you, you, you are buying from a, a reseller who is competing with other resellers, and, right. and um, then there are market forces, right? There are things that happen, right? The, the, the show is more desirable or... Everybody wants the front with so, uh, front, uh, front uh, row seat, and then price goes up. So there, there, I think you're, you're right that there is a mystery component, and, and and the mystery component has more to do with you know either the ticketing agency or the artist not being very upfront about the number of seats available or how they're going to allocate their seats, how, how many seats are withhold and go directly through other channels so there have always been a mystery about about tickets right and and but but in some sense dynamic pricing or having a, a transparent secondary market even though fans don't like that because you know it means that you know maybe price is going to be very high in some sense it's it's uh, it's more transparent yeah, you, you said actually that, that part of this isn't such a bad thing. I mean, I gather part of the issue here is trying to cut out scalpers and resellers, so to speak. Is it effective at doing that? Um, yeah, if the company does it well, uh, for sure, because uh, then there, should, there would be only one price, right? If you believe in the market, you know, uh, uh, and everything is transparent and you equally trust all the sellers, uh, it would be hard for the resellers and the ticket master to charge two different prices because you would just purchase the, the lowest price. Um, but is it effective? Well, no, not really. What, I, what I'm trying to ask you is that <laughs> does, the dyna- does the dynamic, does this whole, if the idea is to try to, to force resellers out of the business, because let, let, let's go back to the, what I was starting to talk about. Mm-hmm. I want to go see a concert. I want to buy a ticket. Oftentimes, by the time you get to the front, you know, back, back in the day, you had to wait in line. So at least you knew how yeah. long the line was. But even then, all the tickets seemed to disappear. Nowadays, you get online, and, and it's almost impossible to buy tickets online for a concert you want to go to see. They seem to vanish almost instantly. And when you That's do right. try to find real sellers, everything has gone up exponentially. That's right. So I guess what I'm trying to ask is if, 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 
trying to ease the middlemen or the middle people out of this is part of what dynamic pricing is do is supposed to do. Does it actually work? I guess was or, or maybe I'm completely off base. No, that that's a good point. So so let's see how they implement it, and let's see. Uh, uh, in principle, it would work, but I, I think. I think what's going to happen is that you're going to have a lot of uh, uh, kickback because you're going to end up with very high prices. So you see, okay, uh, let me backtrack a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, I think I, I think what was happening before was for many hot events with very high demand was, was largely a lie. The lie was to print a low price on the ticket and make all the fans believe that they could buy a ticket at that price. That was a lie because very few artists were able to implement what it would take to do that, which would be a fair lottery. And a fair lottery would mean that you give the tickets only to the fans and you don't let the fans resell for profits. So that was a lie. And, and also that was also to hide the fact that you would allocate actually only very few tickets at that price and, and you would basically sell the, uh, the remaining tickets at a much higher Price directly in the secondary market. So there was a lot of evidence that this was going on. So, so there was the artist wants to maintain this perception that their show is affordable, but at the same time they also want to make some of the money that they could make by by, by playing a little bit the secondary market. So dynamic pricing is so, somehow cutting all this smoke and mirror game that was going on. And at least now, you know, if you are a reseller, you can still buy from Ticketmaster and, and you'll compete against them because they'll price dynamically and you price dynamically too, right? Right? It doesn't right. mean that you exclude the reseller. It's not now you have two different people speculating and trying to make money by, by buying the right seats for the right show and reselling them at the right time. My guest is Pascal Corti. We're trying to make sense of Ticketron. You can tell by how confusing the conversation is, just how confusing buying concert tickets is in this country um, in general. Uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Uh, we'll, we'll try and clear things up a bit more when we come back. My guest this half hour is Pascal Corti. He's a professor of economics at the University of Victoria who's done a lot of work on the resale market for tickets and pop concert pricing. Uh, we're trying to navigate, again, now that people are going back to concerts, the question of how concert tickets are priced, um, how they're sold, is back in the spotlight once again, somewhat. Fans angry about the fact that, you know, sometimes they don't know what they're paying for exactly. This seems like there's fees. They're, they want more transparency, I think, is what it boils down to. Uh, Pascal, where we left off, we were trying to make sense of, of, of all of this. Um, <laughs> does, does Ticketmaster need more competition? Is that part of, the, part of the issue here? Because I think there is this idea that fans pay a lot to buy a ticket from them. I think uh, more competition, more transparency, a clearer uh, game for the consumers, knowing exactly what are their options, and uh, that would really help the the, the markets and the fans. Competition is hard to introduce because uh, Ticketmaster is in a kind of what you would call a natural monopoly, and it's it's very hard to... uh, At the moment, despite big innovation in technology, we, we don't see uh, important competitors coming into the play. No, we don't. Um, what about those fees? I mean, you, you've looked at this for a very long time. Have, have these fees changed at all? Are, are consumers right to be upset about the fees they're charged by these companies? Or is it just part of doing business? 
So the, the fees is more about fair dealings, and there, there have been uh, several investigations. If you remember, right, we have had the same problem with credit cards and with uh, telephone companies back in the days. And so the, depending on the re- jurisdiction, they are, they, they are regulated about what fees they can, they can impose. And this is kind of more a short-term problem, right? If they start to charge all kinds of uh, this fee and that fee that makes no sense, then it, it goes typically most uh, jurisdiction would have a, a consumer fair dealing uh, uh, section that would look at that. And eventually you would see these fees uh, not being used, uh, at least being announced up front, right? Uh, so that's a problem. The, the, the problem is not the fees; is that the, the, the fees are slowly uh, trickled down, and uh, and consumers at the end of the day pay much more than what they thought it would cost. Yeah, I, I guess that's that's part of the issue as well. So, is, so are there solutions to this? I mean, I, I guess I guess what you what you're combining here is the emotion of fans wanting to see their favorite artist, not wanting to spend or not being able to afford to spend huge amounts of money for it. And then competition for these tickets. And then as always, the tickets don't seem to be as plentiful as one might imagine they might be when you get online to buy them. So perhaps there is no good answer here. I mean, what, what do you advise to, to concert goers next time they get online to buy a ticket to a concert they really want to see, but they're amongst many? A good. I mean, uh, so let's turn first. Yeah, let's clarify and make sure we understand. So, what what we need to have is is to have a very clear understanding for the fan. What, are they participating in the lottery? Meaning that they know that there are much more tickets than uh, much fewer tickets than there are people who want tickets. So, they, or are they really playing in a in a very competitive game where basically dynamic pricing, resale, and all that is going on? And at the moment, you know, the problem for the fans already, they don't know, right? They don't know, you know, they're told that there are going to be tickets available, and then it turns out that all the tickets are sold, and there's this, this uh, very obscure uh, and uh, opaque market. So, so for the fan, they're trying to find out, is it, I mean, is it really reasonable that Bruce Springsteen can sell just 10,000 seats for $150? Or, well, at that price, it's pretty unlikely that uh, uh, it's easy to get a ticket. So now what right. fun can, uh, so, so I think beyond that, what fun can do, I mean, I think it's the usual things, right? Try to make sure that they are always uh, uh, keep an ear about, about, about what's going on in the market because what happened, you know, what we, even when the, 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 the big problem that tragically hit uh, tour happened, uh, there, there were tickets available, right? Some tickets are released slowly, and so even with dynamic pricing, sometimes Ticketmasters can be stuck with a couple hundred tickets for whatever reason. They were being supposed to be sold in a given channel. The channel didn't materialize. So for the fans, there's always this possibility to look at many, many different channels, always keep an ear, and sometimes some good deals will, will, will show up because some tickets were held with the hope to fetch a high price, and then and then somehow... Uh, this didn't work out for Ticketmaster, so then they released these tickets last minute. So, so really, that that's part of the opacity. That's part of the slow release, and and fans can take advantage of that, being patient, spend time. And I know it's not, a, it's not a, you know, it's a tough, it's a, uh, it's a tough advice, but 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 it works for some. Yeah, I mean, the, the alternative is just to get mad about it, right? So it sounds it sounds like pretty or, good. Pretty... Or, go, or suck it up and go to secondary market and pay whatever the resellers are willing, uh, whatever it's going to cost you in secondary market. Because secondary market uh, exists, right? And, and if, you, you know, yep. if you want a ticket, you're going to get a ticket. 
So, I mean, as a last question, this may be a bit a bit broad, but um, you know, you you've been looking at this a very long time. What have you learned over all this time? You know, studying how this works. Uh, you know, it is it does seem like quite a unique system of sales because you mentioned the idea of artists are somewhat opposed to being seen to be profiting too much off their fans at the same time there's this huge demand to see them mm-hmm. uh it, it does from an economics point of view it must be a very interesting field because it combines a whole bunch of different emotions and wants and economic forces that's right that's right and, and i think I, I think like to put everything in perspective what's very important is to keep a, a big picture but the industry started sometime in the late 60s early 70s depending on which band you, you credit for the, the first large uh, uh, touring and 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 back in the days it was general admission art i mean when when when, when some artists started to price uh, uh, charge a higher price for the front row seats most people in the industry were saying, you're crazy, right? It's never going to work. And then they discovered that the front row seats were worth a fortune. So now it's pretty systematic to scale the house. So you see, and, and, then, and then sometime in the, um, about 10 years ago, we started to have secondary market and we started very active 10, 20 years ago. And then now we have the bots. We have this whole problem of... Uh, uh, a lot of the ticket release is not done as a box office anymore, and uh, they they are done like uh, online. And now we have these massive problems about, and it's very hard to fight because we have lowered the cost of the uh, of the resellers to 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 easily grab tickets. So so you see the the industry is in constant flux, and also many artists now are willing to be a little more greedy. They they they, they don't uh, you know they are okay with uh, using dynamic pricing. They are okay with charging pretty high prices. And so things are always changing, and, and for the fans, it's a little confusing because maybe you were used to buy tickets a certain way, and five years later, oh, this, this is not possible anymore. Pascal Corti, thank you so much for your insight. This is, again, a fascinating topic. I'm sure we'll talk about it again at some point. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for the good questions. Employers are having to get creative today. You know why? Because unemployment stayed at its historic low of 4.9% in July, remaining unchanged from June as the country continues to face a labor shortage. The rate is the lowest on record, with comparable data going back all the way to 1976, speaking of toys from the 70s. The economy, though, lost 31,000 jobs in July, while the unemployment rate rate again held steady at 4.9%. Here's what Finance Minister Christia Freeland had to say about it. I think the most important thing for Canadians to bear in mind is the unemployment rate today was confirmed to be at 4.9%. That is a historic low for Canada, and that is good news for Canadians. There's Christia Freeland today in Nova Scotia. Canada's labour market is very tight, 1 million, more than 1 million job vacancies across the country right now. But after months of strong wage growth, uh, indeed, senior economist Brandon Bernard says the recent slowdown in jobs growth signals that the labor market may be changing a bit. It looks like the uh, employment recovery has shifted from uh, the gas pedal uh, uh, going down strong to uh, more neutral gear. Still, a new state of Canadian hiring survey of more than 575 managers across this country shows the fight to recruit and retain employees is as fierce as ever. The report from Robert Half Canada shows that despite fears of a recession, employers continue to find new ways to compete for talent. And joining me now with more on the survey is Mike Sheckman. He's the regional director at Robert Half Canada or one of the regional directors at Robert Half Canada. Thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me on. So I guess these new unemployment numbers released today by StatsCan showing more than a million job vacancies across the country um, won't come as a surprise to you. They're certainly on the minds of managers you surveyed across the country. How much hiring is going on these days and what is the mood? It's it's competitive. Uh, the market is quite uh, quite fierce in terms of uh, not only attracting, but also retaining some of the top talent that employers are uh, have within their organization. Uh, our research just continues to show that companies are planning uh, to hire new permanent positions uh, through the second half of the year. Uh, and there is um, no give uh, when it comes to uh, the market conditions. Uh, it's still a very much a candidate-driven market right across the board. Given that, given that it is a candidate's market, uh, what are employers trying to do differently to recruit staff and to retain them? There's a lot of strategies that um, employers and, and leaders are, are putting forward. Um, one of the, the key one, uh, you know, I think it's, it's an old adage, but uh, it's ensuring that you have a, a competitive uh, salary. Uh, and with all the headlines around inflation, interest rates, uh, increasing. There's a lot of pressure in, in terms of some of that um, increasing. So uh, taking notice of that, uh, organizations are pivoting and are trying to uh, make sure that they are offering a competitive uh, advantage when it comes to not only the base salary, but also making sure that the total company uh, looks um, looks solid, uh, which, which again is going to also retain some of the key people in your business. The other piece that we've seen that has been interesting, and just based on our survey, uh, 31% of the respondents for this specific survey showed that and shared that uh, they're actually providing uh, a signing bonus. So this has become a much more prevalent in the last uh, year or 18 months uh, and more popular where maybe the base is not something that you can have flexibility on, but you might be able to have a budget set for uh, to get somebody across the line with a signing bonus. Yeah, there's some interesting stats that you came up with. Um, 45% increasing compensation to retain current employees, uh, 42% increasing starting salaries to attract new talent. So really, uh, it's competitive. As you mentioned, it's competitive out there. What else are they are are, are employers trying to do these days? I know there's also yeah. uh, all this uh, talk around remote work. How flexible is yeah. is what you're hire who you're hiring and where they live? Yeah, Ben, we we've seen a a, a transition and and really. Uh, when we uh, were hit by the pandemic, uh, we were thrust uh, into a position where everybody was working from home. And the future of work is really the future is, is now and how organizations have been able to, to adopt a flexible workforce and uh, with the right technology in place. Uh, organizations uh, that are ahead on the curve where they do uh, offer flexibility are the ones that are getting some top talent uh, in the market. So uh, 34% of uh, the respondents actually shared that offering remote option uh, is something that uh, they are able to, uh, to accommodate. And it's, uh, it's a way, again, to, uh, to, to attract uh, people into the workforce. When you think about it, then uh, we were somewhat, um, you know, we had, we had some parameters when it comes to geography and, and recruiting in our own uh, backyards. Uh, when the pandemic hit, uh, organizations that uh, really transitioned well to uh, work from home, they started recruiting outside of their backyards. So they were looking for the best talent, not only in their city, but right across the country. And that continues uh, as we uh, come out of the pandemic as well. 
I guess we're also seeing, though, despite um, you know, you know the, the fact that there there is this you know this a bit this hunt or at least this competition going on, that hiring managers are worried. They're concerned about their own staff leaving. I get. I guess the sort of the the quote unquote great resignation. Not that we've seen a, a lot of the same impact here in Canada as we have in the states, for instance. But uh, there is a lot of concern about hiring managers out there that the people they have in place are going to leave. Yeah, in nearly 80% of managers are, are, are worried and there is a concern that their employees will be uh, quitting. So uh, retention is, is paramount in, in this current job um, seekers market. Uh, organizations are trying to figure out what is important for them. And I think this is the key, uh, is your ability as a leader to understand what motivates your staff and what's important. Uh, one of the most important things for uh, a lot of individual that maybe was put on the back burner was, was uh, career paths. Uh, I think that when we were in the, again, in the thrust of the pandemic, we were just focused on the business uh, and making sure that people are taken care of at the same time. But uh, career development was not a focus and we're seeing that increasing. So ensuring that uh, your leadership team is, is aware of what is important for uh, the people in the workforce uh, is really, really important because that will change from individual to individual. Yeah, it makes it tough for managers too. I was reading reports this week, of course, that managers are suffering. They're burning out as well because of the extra responsibility, both of doing their jobs and doing what you're describing, which is making sure that a team uh, that has options now is kept happy. And that can often, you know, that can often be difficult considering each person has different wants and needs, right? Yeah, no, I think um, I think that's uh, that's critical, and, and we we know how prevalent uh, uh, mental health and wellness has been uh, for in the discussion point uh, for for many organizations. So so checking in with everybody, and as a leadership team, uh, whether you're uh, whether you're an executive um, and down, you got you have to be able to lead by example and, and ensuring that people are not burning out and and putting together programs in place that will that will help uh, people through. Uh, uh, difficulty times. But, you know, when you're talking about flexibility and, and giving that, I think that uh, certainly helps individual uh, just be able to, to balance those two things. And balancing is not an easy thing, but we call it maybe work-life integration. So having the ability to, again, put the time into uh, doing critical things when it comes to your, your work, uh, but also integrating some of your uh, life uh, priorities as well, uh, which, will, uh, which will help uh, with that along. Uh, one of the things that's also interesting is that a lot of companies are looking to bring in extra help right now. So if you're not in the market for a full-time job, but you are a freelancer or a contractor, it's it's pretty lucrative out there right now. Yeah, the, the gig economy has is, uh, is, is really grown, uh, not only over the last number of years, but uh, especially accelerated through the pandemic. And priorities have changed for people. So having the flexibility to, to be a contractor or a consultant uh, has been uh, has been a really uh, beneficial for for many out there. Uh, we've seen a lot of um, employers use contract professionals uh, to help them with large scale projects uh, that require additional resources uh, within within a specific teams. Uh, we've seen a lot of digital transformation projects that are happening right across uh, across the country for many employers as they needed to really move maybe uh, some of their businesses uh, online. 
Um, we also have a lot of situations where uh, with the business evolving and client requirements uh, change as well, uh, maybe the skills that are within the business are not available. So bringing in somebody that can have a specific uh, niche or a specialization can really help uh, the organization uh, move forward without hiring an individual permanently. I'm speaking with Mike Sheckman. He's the regional director at Robert Half Canada. They have a new survey out, the State of Canadian Hiring Survey of 575 managers across the country. Uh, on a day when StatsCan has reminded us of just how low the unemployment rate is, a million job vacancies across this country, and that's showing up in this survey as well with lots of competition for employees, lots of different tactics to try to recruit and retain those that are already there. When we come back, uh, we'll look ahead to the next six months because uh, despite fears of a recession, it seems like hiring will continue. That's next. Mike Sheckman is with us this half hour. He's the regional director at Robert Half Canada. We're talking about a new survey that they've put out called the State of Canadian Hiring Survey. Uh, it comes on the same day, or at least we're talking about it on the same day that StatsCan's put out new new numbers on the unemployment rate in this country, still at a record low, 1 million job vacancies. And that's really turning up uh, in this survey as well, where managers are well aware of just how competitive it is. Uh, the race for employees is out there. And according to the survey, it looks like, uh, at least for the rest of 2022, the hiring will continue. Yeah, Ben, we, we were, we're seeing that um, when you're looking at the survey specifically uh, between adding new positions across the country uh, and filling vacant position, it makes up 90%. Uh, so uh, really, we're, we're going to continue on the trend where organizations are, are feeling confidence that they can, they can onboard individual and recruit. Uh, There's just going to be a shortage in terms of who they can bring on, which is going to be the, the, bigger, the bigger challenge as we move ahead through the second half of the year. Now, is this need for employees, is it, it obviously isn't evenly spread out across all professions and all titles, right? I mean, where, where are you seeing the pinch points? Uh, where is the real demand right now, do you think? Yeah, you know, the, the one thing, interesting thing is that um, the demand is, is across uh, many industries, uh, but, but specifically there, there are uh, some, some industries uh, that are a little bit um, uh, accelerating through the second half. Uh, now, uh, you know, when, when you're looking at business administrative and finance roles, unemployment is actually below 2% uh, nationally. So we're going to continue seeing that pressure uh, come on. But uh, when you're looking at specific roles uh, within finance and accounting, we're seeing high demand for finance and financial planning and analysis professionals. There's a lot of financial uh, reporting requirements that are happening with many changes uh, uh, for, for a year end coming up uh, at the end of this year. Uh, we're also still seeing a lot of pressure uh, to find strong talent within technology, despite you know, some organizations that are facing uh, some restructuring and some, some freezes uh, with, with some uh, names across the country. But technology process automation continues to be a, a key uh, focus and also cloud architecture and operation. Uh, when you're thinking of positions uh, and automating a lot of process for organizations, that's going to be uh, a really key focus over the next number of years, especially with the continued uh, labor force uh, shrinking, because we are, we're seeing that a lot of the baby boomers and uh, the, the generations of the 55 and plus are going to be retiring, uh, and there's just not enough people replacing those uh, key roles. 
I was also interested to look and see in your survey that uh, very few companies, although more now than a few than a year ago when it was, I think, about zero. But on the flip side of all this, very few companies are looking at job cuts or uh, yeah. freeze hiring, uh, freeze a uh, freeze in hiring or laying people off. Yeah, it's a, it's a low amount. Uh, you know, the, the needle moved from zero percent to uh, to two percent, so still very much uh, a relative low uh, low number. Uh, in those specific situations, um, there could be a number of different factors. Uh, it could be a situation where an organization may be overhired as they accelerate through the second half of twenty twenty one and are right sizing some of their uh, teams. Uh, and it, it also uh, shows us that, um, you know, overall, the hiring is, is above the pre-pandemic level. So businesses are really now just looking to uh, onboard and train some of the new staff and uh, are, are, you know, continuously on that trend. So we're not seeing the impact uh, in the labor force uh, as we are seeing with some of the other headlines and when it comes to, uh, again, um, some of the, the recession headlines and the economic slowdown that is uh, overarching and a little bit of the red flags uh, out there. You do get the sense, though, that with all this talk of a potential recession or at least an economic slowdown, that there is some caution in there, that perhaps there's some caution in there, that this is sort of filling what's missing. But how much growth are we going to see? Do, do you, you know, I know you can't tell necessarily from this survey exactly, yeah. uh, but did you get a sense that there's some caution as well from uh, from managers that, that are being spoken to? Yeah, I think anecdotally, I think organizations um, are, are going to be a little bit cautious. I think they, they, they it would be irresponsible not to. Uh, to ensure that they're doing their own due diligence in terms of uh, where their industry or business uh, uh, strategy and where they want to head. You know, they are still uh, full force ahead where companies, for the most part, are are doing their best to to, to grow uh, and ensure that uh, they're doing it responsibly uh, and with a thoughtful uh, approach. Uh, but nobody has that crystal ball. So I think that organizations are, are just dealing with, uh, with the now. Uh, and as it stands, it's, it's, um, it's tough. It's a very, very challenging market. Uh, and it's, uh, it continues to be the number one challenge for, for many employers and leaders uh, in terms of um, retaining and, uh, and attracting talent. Mike Sheckman, thanks so much for your time tonight. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Ben. This is a story that if you're outside of Vancouver, BC may not have heard, but this what happened to 13-year-old Noelle Osoup in many ways defies explanation, defies belief. She went missing from a foster care facility near Vancouver in May of 2021. Her remains were discovered in a small apartment on Vancouver's downtown east side a year later. Left in that 12-month void is a very, very long list of unanswered questions. Our Global News colleague, Sarah McDonald, has been investigating Noelle's disappearance and death. Here's one of her reports. For week after week after week, we now know she was here. A 13-year-old child who somehow vanished while in the care of the province. Noelle Osoup's remains only finally found in May in the same unit where she lay dead and undetected for months. Noelle had been in the apartment deceased for quite a long period of time. And in that period of time, officers had come into the building, like they'd removed another deceased person while there were still two deceased people in the unit for months. Global News has learned the remains of Noelle, 
and those of a woman in her 30s would only be discovered more than two months after the tenant occupying that unit. A man in his 40s was discovered dead himself. His sudden death is not considered suspicious, but that of Noelle and the other female found dead alongside her are, and now under investigation by the Vancouver Police Department's major crime section. He was found and then Noel a few months later. So there is that gap. And of course the family had questions about that. Why didn't somebody do an investigation right away? Why didn't they go through the whole room? It's a small room. Despite that, according to sources, the remains of those two female victims were only ultimately discovered by building maintenance staff, not Vancouver police, following months of complaints by other residents of an overwhelming and persistent Foul stench. Claws like, oh, it smells like death. But blood is has a strong sense. I was having a hard time eating. I was just like mortified. Grace Billiqua, who lives in a neighboring unit, repeatedly raised concerns about the inescapable and unmistakable smell. Honestly, there was a smell eight months prior to his death. We all tried to make the scent go away and we tried to tell him he has to deal with it. Still, the Vancouver Police Department is refusing to release its call records involving this building, refusing any comments altogether on its potential investigative blunder or the identity of the man who lived alongside dead bodies for months, refusing to confirm even to family if he's being investigated in connection to these suspicious deaths or any others. Why was she in the unit with a 40-year-old man or over 40-year-old man? There's no reason for her to be there. The Office of the Police Complaint Commissioner launching an investigation of its own into the actions of a single Vancouver police officer for neglect of duty, confirming to Global News the basis of the allegation relates to conduct surrounding attendance at a suite where three deceased individuals were ultimately located. It seems pretty astounding to me that a single officer is being investigated for negligence when we have heard from easily a dozen people who had interactions with VPD officers and were ignored. And that includes multiple reported sightings of Noelle in and around this building while she was still alive and extremely vulnerable. It's so upsetting to think that if maybe one of these people had been taken seriously, that Noel might still be with us. An avoidable tragedy left haunting those who loved Noel and those who never knew her at all. I feel like I could have done something to prevent that. Like that's like my sisters. It hurts. And a child who fell through the cracks of a broken system failed even in death. Sarah McDonald, Global News. So what happened to the teen? How did she end up where she did? How did she die? Why? And why was seemingly so little done to protect her? Well, one of the voices you heard in Sarah McDonald's report was that of Noelle's cousin, Olivia Louie. And she joins me now with more. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me, Ben. One of the things that always strikes me when, when reading and hearing these reports is, is, is always wanting to know more about her, about Noelle. Um, I guess she was born on Christmas Day. That's the name, right? That's right. Yeah, she was born on Christmas Day. What was she like as a child, as a, as a young teen? Yeah, so um, Noelle was a really sweet girl. She was an amazing sister to her brothers. Um, I only actually spent time with Noelle when she was younger. 
Um, once she was in foster care, it became more difficult for family members to maintain contact with her. Um, so I saw her much less frequently um, in the last few years. But she was a really sweet girl. She loved drumming and singing. Um, she was really playful and, yeah, a special person. What was your reaction? What, what, how, when did you find out that she had disappeared, that she had seemingly just vanished? I had first found out that Noelle was missing about a year ago. Um, and when she first went missing, we were all very concerned. Um, my understanding was that a lot of family members weren't aware that Noelle had been missing immediately, um, that it took a, a while for social workers to contact people and, and let us know. Um, as soon as we found out, um, my mom and I spent time like printing off posters. I work in Vancouver on the downtown east side pretty frequently. So I would spend my time after work just kind of like walking around and looking for her and um, passing out posters. And, you know, we were all scared. We were worried for Noelle. She was 13 years old. Um, she had some developmental issues that also like we didn't imagine that she would be safe or able to care for herself on her own and then there's also the concerns of why did she run away like we knew that she wasn't happy in the placement that she was in um, there'd been some moving around within the, uh, the foster system before she went missing that made us led us to believe that she wasn't receiving the support or care that she needed at the time. So when you started the search, you must have already, I mean, you've already said you must have been very concerned just about, you know, 13 year olds don't just vanish, do they? They don't. And they don't, I mean, the idea of a 13 year old leaving their home and ending up in East Vancouver, like Noelle was in Coquitlam at the time, that's a long distance for someone to be. And I just think if that seems like the better option, like what was happening in her current living situation at the time. And through that time that you were searching for, you never really had, no one really had any idea what had happened, right? No one knew where she was. No, in since Noelle's passing, we have heard from many people that there were sightings of Noelle and that people had seen her um, and tried to alert VPD officers. Um, most of the people who spoke with us and shared those stories were community members of the downtown east side. Um, and I think that says a lot about the Vancouver Police Department and the stigma that they carry when credibility seems to be based oftentimes on race and economic status. Because after all the lessons that were learned from the inquiry into the uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, one would think that something like Noelle's case would set off alarm bells instantly. Yeah, I mean, there have been so many reports, there's so much data, um, and the reaction and the response to Noelle missing was really, it felt like it wasn't nearly enough. Um, family members had advocated for an Amber Alert to be issued, um, and that was determined inappropriate because of the criteria of the Amber Alert. And we were told that, um, I think that the police even mentioned in a report that 
Noel likely did not want to be found. So there are all of these ideas and this language and labeling around her that I think was based on, on nothing. There was no truth behind any of that. And, you know, Amber Alerts go out all the time and for good reason, for people's safety, for children's safety. And that wasn't, even that was denied to her. If we fast forward a bit, I guess, tragic and my condolences, of course, to you and the whole family, um, once you learned what had happened, and it took quite a while for that to be discovered as well. Do we know anything about the circumstances about where she was found and how she could have possibly ended up there? Well, we know where she was found um, was just off of East Hastings on Heatley Street. She was found. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was found in the apartment of a man in his 40s who lived there alone. It was a very small apartment. Um, And tenants of that building had complained for in excess of eight months of um, just like a horrible odor and really suspicious behavior of the tenant. Um, And police responded to a few of those calls and were at that apartment in which time Noel and another female had al- were already deceased in the apartment without being found. Eventually, the tenant of that apartment was found deceased quite a few days after his death. Um, and at that point in time, the police, the tenant was taken out of the building and somehow in that period of time and like spending time in that apartment, two other bodies weren't discovered, which just seems like that's unbelievable to me. It was a tiny apartment, like what kind of care and search went into that to result in two more bodies being there, um, one being Noelle, who likely at the time was 13 years old. Um, it's, yeah, it's just hard to imagine. I'm speaking with Olivia Louis. She is the cousin of Noelle O'Soup. We're talking about the case of Noelle. Uh, she disappeared from a foster care home uh, in the Vancouver area uh, and seemed to sort of vanish into thin air in many ways, but was found, her body was found uh, more than a year after she disappeared in May of 2021 in a uh, small apartment on Vancouver's downtown east side. How she got there, what she was doing there, We don't know. The family has many, many questions still of police, of um, child and family services. And we'll get to some of those questions after this. My guest this half hour is Olivia Louis. She's cousin of Noelle Osoup, a 13-year-old BC girl who ran away uh, from from a foster care home. Uh, not to be seen or or at least not to be identified publicly for quite a while, for more than a year when her body was found in uh, in a tiny apartment uh, on the downtown east side in Vancouver, how she got there, why she was in that apartment with another uh, body of another woman who was found deceased, uh, a man who had died of natural causes earlier. uh, The bodies weren't found of the two women were not, the woman and the girl were not found when police first searched. You must have so, as a family, you must have so many questions. Where do you begin? I mean, it's hard to know where to begin. I feel that the more that we learn about the circumstances surrounding Noelle's death, just the more confused and the more questions we have. Um, We were told 
pretty recently, um, which we only found out through the media, not through the Vancouver Police Department themselves, that one of the investigators and officers who had responded to the scene initially was being investigated um, for negligence due to a lack of following protocol. Um, it just was revealed to us recently, though, that that officer who remained on duty with their identity not being revealed to the general public, um, that investigation is actually on hold and it will likely never be concluded because the officer being investigated is not, it's not able to continue until Noel's case is closed. But due to the lack of evidence, which is partially the responsibility of this officer, her case will likely never be closed. I think that's such a strong example of, of just how uh, persistent and deliberate these patterns of, um, of, of no accountability continue. You know, there's, there's really no accessible or reliable system for Indigenous women, girls, or 2SLGBTQQIA plus to seek any recourse for the violations of like of our human and indigenous rights, the legal systems just completely fail to hold the state or the country accountable. Because it seems in this case, you must want answers from, from those who were responsible for her care in the first place as well, not just those who were responsible for trying to find her or trying to investigate what happened to her after, but, but those who were supposed to protect her in the first place. Exactly. I mean, the whole idea of MCFD, there is so many flaws within that system. I believe that it's beyond reform. Um, the fact that she was taken out of the care of her parents and then put into a, the care of a system that led to her being missing and then dying, it, that's not safety. And there's no it doesn't seem like there's any recourse or accountability on MCFD for the lack of care that they provided. What sort of response be, I mean, I, I guess the community, there's been a lot of outpouring of, of sympathy for you and the family for what happened to Noel. Um, is, has that been any comfort at all to you and, and, and to the rest of the family? Yeah, I think that the greatest comforts that we've received are from like local community, from indigenous community, um, specifically Butterflies and Spirit. Um, they are a missing and murdered indigenous women and girls support system. Um, and I'm, I'm so thankful for them. I don't know how they do the work that they do, but no one else has really been able to guide us through this or walk alongside us and offer us any resources or support. Because you're not getting a lot of answers to any of these questions that you have, right? Whether it be from police or from uh, child and family services in, in BC. That's true. We have had very little contact um, and, and communication with the BPD. We still haven't met with the RCMP. Um, and MCFD is it just feels like they're all passing blame onto each other without anyone actually taking accountability. Um, even as far as getting Noelle's records of care um, from MCFD, 
we were told by the VPD that they were not going to be doing an investigation on MCFD. And MCFD told us that if we wanted her records, we would have to file for an FOI. Freedom of information, right? Exactly, which just feels like, it just doesn't feel right to for them to withhold this information so we can try and have some closure and understand like where things went wrong and how we can improve on the current model of care and systems of care. One can only hope in this case that that something is that, that there is change that this that perhaps Noel gets is is the last one. I mean, it's that's probably hope beyond hope. But Olivia Louis, thank you so much for sharing uh, Noel's story, your story, your family's story uh, with me tonight. Thank you for having me, Ben. 